0: A couple of weeks ago, I heard uh, an interview on the radio with Richard Dawkins, the famous uh, British atheist. And he was lamenting the fact, or what he considers to be the fact, that children are taught so little about evolution in school. And he said something to the effect of, it is wrong that children are not taught about evolution more explicitly and more extensively, since it's evolution that explains so much about who we are and why we exist, and questions like that. And I found myself both, at the same time, strongly reacting against what Dawkins was saying, but also agreeing with him in a sense. And I think the difference between my two reactions can be boiled down to the distinction between the what and the how of listening. We often care a lot about what we listen to. We sing a little song, be careful little ears, what you hear but we spend much less time thinking about how we're listening. The song does not go, be careful, little ears, how you hear. And in Dawkins' case, I disagree with the what, what he wants kids to listen to. Not that I'm opposed in any way to the teaching of evolution in school, if nothing else, for the tremendous influence it's had historically. But I think what uh, Dawkins undersells is the extent to which naturalistic evolution has permeated all academic disciplines. In other words, whether or not the particulars of natural selection are explained an adequate number of times during a child's education, I really have no idea. But the fact is that so many other disciplines from psychology to sociology and obviously the so-called hard sciences are completely dependent on evolutionary theory so that it's virtually impossible to study anything and be free from it. So I disagree with the what part, with what Dawkins wants us to listen to. But I couldn't agree with him more when it comes to the how of how we listen. Because the reason he wants children to encounter evolution more frequently frequently, is not so that they can have uh, a more complete understanding of random genetic mutation or junk DNA or any of that stuff. The reason is so they can answer the big questions in life. and What does this mean for my life? If this theory is true, what does it say about why I exist, about my interactions with others, about my moral impulses, and so on? And it cuts both ways, doesn't it? If if I believe that I'm purely the product of natural processes, in other words, that I have no uh, spiritual or eternal dimension, then those are the kinds of questions that I'm forced to ask myself if I'm listening well. What is my value? What is the purpose of my life? In what sense does my life have significance if I'm reducible to pure matter, to natural materials? But of course, those of us on the other side also have the same responsibility to chase down the implications of our beliefs. For instance... Next time we look at the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be looking at the account of Jesus calming the storm. The winds and the waves obey Jesus Christ. At least that's what the text claims. But if that were actually true, then what? If Jesus is the Lord of the universe, how will that play itself out in my life and how I handle my checkbook or how I talk to my wife or how I operate down at the office and so on? So we can't just ask, what am I listening to, and stop there. We can't just ask, am I listening to the right message, the right content? We have to go one step further and ask, how am I listening to? How am I listening? Is what I'm hearing playing itself out in a logical way with what I do with my life? And so uh, to that end, we're going to look at two paragraphs today from Luke Luke chapter 8 that help us to evaluate how we are listening Uh, Jesus has just finished the famous parable of the sower. And he says, some of you are like rocky soil, some like weeds, some like good soil, and so on. And the parable, obviously, is asking you the question, which soil are you, right? And in the verses that follow, we find two follow-up questions that we're going to be asking this morning. And the first is, how should I listen to Jesus? And the second is, how can I belong to Jesus? How should I listen And how can I belong? And we find that in Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 16 through 21. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Now I imagine that the beginning of this section, verse 16, comes as a bit of a relief to the disciples after the parable of the sower where Jesus has to explain to them every last detail and you're trying to keep track of all the soils and thinking, you know, which soil am I again? The rocky one or the one on the path? Or you just think, like, probably I do. Well, as long as I'm the good soil, then I don't need to keep track of what all the other soils mean. But then you come to this verse here in 16 and it's kind of like going back to kindergarten. Do you light a lamp and put it under a jar? Or what about this? Do you light a lamp and put it under a bed? And finally, the disciples are thinking, Yes, I'm tracking with you this time, Jesus. No one would be dumb enough to do that. If you cover a lamp, you put it out. If you put it under the bed, you either put it out or you light the mattress on fire. We may not understand a lot of what you're saying, Jesus, but you can't trick us here. So it's almost a joke. I mean, no one would be foolish to do what Jesus suggests here. But while it's obvious how the metaphor works, it's a little less clear what it means. For instance, who is the lamp in verse 16? Is it Jesus and his teaching, or is it us and our witness? Jesus calls himself the light of the world, of course, but we are also called lights of the world. Paul says, Uh, We're to shine like stars, and we all sing that little song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm going to let it shine. So, which one is it? Well, the commentators have historically been divided on the question, but I think there is a sense in which, at least for us, the meanings uh, overlap a little bit. And that is, even if Jesus is the lamp in verse 16 that's not supposed to be hidden, people around us don't come into the light of Christ, usually, unless we have accepted our commission to go and to make disciples, to be a light to our world. And if you look back to the parable of the sower, just one verse earlier, what do we see is true about the good soil? There in verse 15 it says, they hear the word, retain it, and then produce a crop. So apparently fruitfulness is a mark of hearing God's word well. So if you want to ask yourself the question, Not only am I listening to the right things, but am I listening in the right way to God's word? One thing to look for is, am I producing a crop anywhere? Whether that be at the office or at home with my kids or in the neighborhood, wherever, our sphere of influence is. Am I bringing the light of Jesus to the world into contact with those around me? And we see here in verse 17 what the result of that would be. He says, "...for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open." So something that was hidden is now being brought out into the open for all to see. And that's the logical result of hearing well. If you take care how you listen to Jesus, the secrets of the kingdom of God will be made known to those around you. The gospel will be proclaimed in the open." And that, I think, is one of the interesting things about the new atheism, especially Dawkins has done a lot of work in this, sort of the, the evangelical impulse, you might say, recruiting others to that worldview. I remember uh, reading a couple years ago about some of these atheistic Sunday schools that were uh, popping up in California, places where kids could go for their weekly atheistic teaching. And in London, there's that famous uh, bus atheist campaign that Dawkins is uh, behind. And the question that's always raised is, why are they doing that? I mean, what is the logical connection between a purely naturalistic worldview and proselytizing? Do you see what I mean? If I if I'm purely the product of natural processes, then what difference does it make to you what I believe? I mean, because we all are going to share the same destiny, right? Our lives will end, we will all decompose, and that will be that. I mean, is it just a courtesy to me so that I don't go through my life believing in some delusion. But in the context of natural selection, at least to me, that doesn't seem to make very much sense. Because while I'm wasting my time here every Sunday morning, you could be getting ahead of me, whether that be at work or on the golf course or wherever. It's to your advantage if I live in my theistic delusion. So why would you try to win me over? But for the Christian, the connection between hearing well and shining as a light, I think, is much more logical. It it follows much more logically. Because we believe that in our response to God's word, our relationships are at stake. Uh, We believe that finding purpose in my life is at stake. And ultimately, we believe that eternity is at stake. And so if those things are at stake it makes sense that it's crucial that that message be shared with those around me. And so, if we are hearing Jesus well, we don't do what verse 16 says and snuff out the light or light the mattress on fire or any of those things. Instead, we bring God's word into the open so that others might join us. But, when we do that, we have to be cognizant of its kind of divisive nature. Look again at verse 18. He says, Therefore, consider carefully how you listen, which is the main point of the paragraph. right? And then he says, Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. So it sounds a little bit like that modern proverb, the rich always get richer and the poor get poorer. Only here, Jesus isn't talking about money, is he? He's talking about the revelation of God. If I listen well to God's word, I will understand more and more clearly. I will receive more spiritual insight. I will go deeper and deeper. But if I do not listen well, I'll lose even what I think I know. And it's the same distinction that he makes with that famous uh, saying back in verse verse 8 when he says, He who has ears to hear let him hear. And you think, well, that is a very strange thing to say. Of course, if I have ears, I'm going to hear. That's the whole point of having ears. But Jesus is saying, you're really only using your ears well if what you hear manifests itself in your life in some way. Because there's probably a dozen other ways to use your ears. Perhaps I come to listen to God's word in order to find some fault with the message, to, to analyze it to death. Or perhaps I come because it's so fascinating and unpredictable, I and mean, who knows what crazy Jesus is going to do this week. He's doing all these different things. Or perhaps I come to feel good about myself. You know, whenever I'm around people who are talking about Jesus, I just feel a lot better inside. Or perhaps we just come to space out for a few minutes, you know, in one ear and out the other. You know, thank goodness for church, I finally get to shut my brain off for 30 minutes every week and just relax. So, how we listen to Jesus is absolutely crucial. And think about the negative consequences that he spells out here in verse 18. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. So, there's a very real sense in which some of you might be better off not even coming back here next week. And I say that at some risk to myself. Now, of course, I want you to all be here and welcome Pastor Mike back to Highland Park. No question about that. But you see what the text is saying, right? It would be better if you never listened to God's word at all than to listen to it in the wrong way. Because every time you hear the gospel and resist it or fail to respond to it, you become increasingly impervious to the message. You train yourself, whether you're doing it on purpose or not, you train yourself to be kind of a tin roof listener where the rain is coming week after week and it just, the more it comes, the more it bounces off and runs away. The more I hear and do nothing about it, the easier it is to hear and do nothing about it. And you think, well, I could just flip on the switch and start caring at any moment I wanted. But for now... I'm just content to be on autopilot all the time. But Jesus has promised that if that describes how you listen, you are deceiving yourself and you will be left with zero spiritual insights. Well, if that's the case, how then should we be listening? Well, I like the image of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's the 20th century German theologian. And, I mean, he's a true genius academically. He's a true genius theologically. He's a fine musician, he's you know upper 0.1 percent uh, all the way around. But when he's up there in uh, Finkenwald, in the seminary in the north of Germany, that he started for the kind of rogue confessing evangelicals during the Third Reich, and when his fledgling students would come into his preaching class to preach for him, he would set aside his pencil and he would set aside his paper and resist the urge to pick apart everything that he was hearing, which he certainly could have done at his level of intellect. And instead, he simply opened up his Bible and sat and listened. He was prepared for God to speak to him through his word and through his messenger. And I like that image of being just an open and engaged listener. So pray for yourself, that you would hear well. Pray for whoever is teaching or sharing the word with you. Pray that you would not only be listening to the right message, the right content, but that you would be listening in the right way because the benefits are so great. He says, whoever has will be given more. Well, if that's how we should listen to Jesus, uh, we turn our attention briefly then to the next question, which is, How can I belong to him? And uh, surprise, surprise, the answer to both questions is very similar, which I'm sure is why Luke uh, puts these two paragraphs next to each other in his gospel. Look again at verse uh, 19 through 21. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Your mothers and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Now, somewhat ironically, uh, this paragraph, which is obviously about doing God's word, right, has often been bogged down in little curious questions about Jesus' family. Why are they visiting him? Who are Jesus' brothers? Are they really his cousins, or did Mary have more children after Jesus? Where is Joseph? Is he dead? And so on. And if you read the uh, parallel accounts, especially the Gospel of Mark, there seems to be a hint of strife between Jesus and his family. But here in Luke, that doesn't seem to be the case. The story is very matter-of-fact. We have no clue about why they're visiting Jesus. And I don't think Jesus means any offense by what he says here. The family is simply a means to an end. And that is Jesus teaching us about who his true family really is. And besides, there's plenty of evidence elsewhere that Jesus does have at least a fairly good relationship with his family, right? You Think of uh, his care for his mother, Mary, even as he's hanging on the cross, wanting to make sure that she's uh, taken care of after he's died. So, for whatever reason, the family has come to see Jesus here, but they can't get close to him. Jesus, apparently, is teaching inside of a house, and there are so many people that the family can't even get in through uh, the doors. And when you first read it, it makes you a little sad. I mean, it makes me a little sad, right? It reminds me of those uh, celebrities and athletes that are distanced from people who were, you know, close to them in their past. I remember a couple years ago reading a story about Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback for the 49ers, who was adopted as a baby, and he knows who his birth mother is, and so do you if you Google Colin Kaepernick's birth mother, and her picture is all over uh, the internet. And shes th- I think she goes to a lot of games, and she's sitting there watching him play, but she has uh, no relationship. I don't think they've uh, they've ever spoken before. And I understand why Kaepernick doesn't want to connect with her. It makes sense to me. But it still makes me a little sad. I mean, she's observing him from a distance, but she can't get close to him because all these crowds of people are uh, are in between them. But Luke doesn't introduce this scene to make us feel bad for Jesus' family. And he doesn't introduce it to show us how tough it must be to live as a celebrity. Jesus is simply saying, If you want to belong to me, it's not a matter of physical kinship. It's a matter of hearing and doing God's word. It's not enough just to intellectually understand Jesus' message. That's not enough to bring you close to him. Only responding with obedience can accomplish that. I like what one person has said. Jesus does not want scribes, but servants. And I think uh, before we close, there's at least one additional point we have to make, uh, which is not the main point of uh, this paragraph, granted. But that is to think about the relationships in our own lives and to acknowledge that spiritual ties should supersede physical ties. Spiritual relationships should supersede our physical, biological relationships. Now, look, I am very enthusiastic about family life today and focus on the family and family values and all these family things. I mean, Julie and I were just looking into uh, going to a family life marriage conference uh, over the last few days. But... I suspect that many of us at some point have probably been guilty of making family into an idol in our lives. And we talked about the devil uh, last time when Wyeth was here preaching on the parable of the sower. And think about it. The devil would be very wise, very strategic to get us involved in an idolatrous relationship with something so important to our lives. If I ask... You know, say there's a hundred people here today. If I ask you all, you know, what is an idol that most people struggle with? We would all say money, power, workaholism, uh, something like that, which I'm sure is true in many cases. But the fact is that many of us have little idols running around our houses, and we're more than willing to put matters of eternal significance on the back burner so that we can serve these little idols. There's no question that it's a great privilege to be involved in a family as a parent or as a sibling or as a son or a daughter. It's a great privilege to be involved in a marriage to make all those memories and reap all those benefits. But what ultimately is your burning desire for your family? What do you want more than anything else for your kids, for instance? Is it that they would have five Hockey trophies by the time they're in second grade and graduate in the top 20% of their class? Or is it that your son would become your brother and your daughter would become your sister in Christ? Along the same lines, what's, what's our ultimate goal as husbands? I like how uh, Alistair Begg asks the question. He says, is our, is our goal that our wives would be presented faultless before Christ in exceeding glory? or that they would be presented faultless in front of their peers with exceeding stuff. So I think it's quite possible for us to go to every ball game and remember every anniversary, but still miss the issue very badly. But if we hear Jesus well, if we're careful not only with what our little ears hear, but with how they hear, our duty to him will take precedence over everything else in our lives. Would you join me in prayer? God, we do pray that uh, you would empower us to uh, make manifest that reality in each of our lives, that we would uh, resist the temptation not only to make idols of things that we all would consider to be evil, but uh, that we would resist the temptation to make idols of those blessings that you have given us graciously in our lives, but that we would know sort of the order of uh, priorities as you have, uh, have willed for us to live. Uh, we pray that you would grant us the ability to hear your word well uh, this week and uh, going forward, and that we would be very careful listeners, not only with what we listen to, but uh, making sure that we listen well so that we manifest in our lives, in our obedience, uh, what we hear through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.